welcome to the ASCD Connect podcast, supporting you on your journey as a life-changing educator. Here's your host for today's program. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of ASCD's podcast. I'm Sarah McKibben, Editor-in-Chief of Yale Magazine, and in today's conversation, we're talking about digital storytelling, specifically how it can be used across disciplines to spark a real emotional investment in learning. Digital storytelling redefines literacy, says today's guest, Michael Hernandez. Michael is an award-winning high school journalism, film production, and photography teacher in Los Angeles, and author of the new ISTE book, Storytelling with Purpose, Digital Projects to Ignite Student Curiosity. Welcome to our program, Michael. Hey, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, so first, can you briefly describe what digital storytelling is and what got you interested in it? Yeah, so people have different descriptions or understandings of digital storytelling. For me, it's a very broad definition. So it's not just videos, but it also includes any way that you can communicate and share ideas, information, and emotion. So that would include anything as simple as a still photograph all the way up to a video documentary. And in between, you've got you know, oral history projects or podcasts, you've got digital books, explainer videos, and for math and science, what's something that's really interesting is data visualization and infographics. So you have a lot to choose from and a lot of different options as an educator. In your article in the December-January issue of EL, you wrote that digital storytelling redefines literacy. Can you talk about in what way? Yeah, so I think my definition of literacy is maybe much broader than our traditional sense, which is decoding words or text or even numbers. And I think the, the important piece of this is how everything is interconnected. And so I feel like literacy includes cultural literacy, understanding other people and cultures, digital literacy, understanding how all these um, digital tools work together and have impact on ourselves and our psychology, but also on the world in general. And the sense of providing context and how digital tools and digital storytelling projects can enhance interdisciplinary understanding and how all these different pieces are interconnected. So we use math in art and how historical settings are impacting what's happening right now in the world of literature, for example. And so I feel like it's a great way to kind of approach teaching and learning because everything is connected and it's a great way to connect to our students' lives. It's not a separate task that old people did in Europe like 300 or 1,000 years ago. It's something that we do right now every day. And so part of it is all the research is saying that kids need to have context and they need to be practicing these skills that are vital to being a productive citizen, but then also just this personal connection to our, our lives. And I think that's a great way to connect our curriculum to the students and get them engaged and help them see what's so important about our curriculum in their lives. What is it about these projects that hooks students? One of the maybe reasons why people don't use technology is that we were promised this magical tool that suddenly was gonna solve all of our problems, right? Kids are gonna be engaged because it's this shiny tool and it's gonna help with grading and all these things. And it turned out to be a really difficult thing that was clumsy and we didn't roll it out right. And nobody had the professional development training to understand how to use it well and effectively in our classrooms. And 
now the kids have everything, right? They have a phone in their pocket that can do all these things. And so it's not so much about a shiny object or a flashy new thing to introduce just to quote unquote, keep the kids engaged. It's actually more about the learning. And so I feel like digital tools can facilitate learning because we can lower the barriers to entry for all of the learning. So take, for example, students with learning disabilities, right? Or a non-native English speaker. So you have people who get tripped up with the assessments of like, you've got to do a timed essay and it's got to be this many paragraphs with this kind of vocabulary and grammar. And they're like, but I don't have that skill or my mind doesn't work that way yet, or I'm not developmentally able to do that yet, but I've got the ideas and they're locked in here. And so it really helps us rethink what does it mean to assess a student? What do we really want the kids to learn? And so it's not just about giving them happy, shiny toys to play with. This is about how can we best get the knowledge and information out of our kids and to help them make a connection and to make it easier to learn rather than, you know, you got to do it the old fashioned way and suffer, right? It's not about suffering. It's about the ideas. It is about working hard and it is about rigor, but it's not about let's just make it hard just because. And so when we think about students being able to, to create a project that gets published authentically like a digital book or a website or a podcast like this one, for example. We're engaging in how they have lived their lives. They can see a connection to the purpose behind what we're doing. And also that they know that what they do can have an impact on other people. And I feel like that's something that's been missing in education for a long time and we've all known it. And whether we've said it out loud or we've just been banging our head against the wall for so long, we're like, why aren't the kids like, paying attention. Why aren't they completing their homework? Why aren't they? Because it's no, it's, it's not enjoyable. And also there's no point to it. Yeah. Right? If you're just like turning it in to throw an assignment in the trash, then what does that tell the kids? What's the message that we're sending them about their work, their hard effort, their blood, sweat, and tears is like, it doesn't matter. It's kind of like if your school administrator comes to you and says, work really hard on this. I want you to make this fat, thick report. It's really important for our school. And, and you're going to publish it. And we're going to print it out on all this copy paper. And then it just goes on a shelf or in the trash. Right. We've all been through that many times. Right. It, it doesn't make you feel engaged. It doesn't make you feel part of the community. And you know, there's not really a point to it. And so you're disincentivized to do meaningful work, to care about your project. And also the secondary message of all of this is that education stinks. Education is not enjoyable or, or purposeful. And really I'm Jedi mind tricking everybody with this book because <laughs> the real point of this is Yes, we're doing these projects and yes, we're helping you solve problems in your classroom. But really what I want my kids to do and all of our kids to, to feel is that learning is meaningful, purposeful, engaging, enjoyable, even if it's hard work, and that we can do something that matters and that we trust our students to continue to learn in an ongoing capacity in their own lives when no one is looking, when there's not a grade on the line. How do we create that? I think it's vital to the foundation of our democracy. And so that's kind of really my real reason for doing this, but. <laughs> no, that's great. That's, you know, so what are some creative ways you've seen digital storytelling used across disciplines? One really quick example is the science department chair at my high school. I teach at a high-performing school in the suburbs of Los Angeles. Most of our teachers and parents expect a very traditional kind of classroom. We don't have to worry too much about test scores, although there are populations that struggle. But there's definitely this mindset that we've got to do it the old fashioned way, you know, drill and kill, memorize, regurgitate, take tests, and then go home. 
And so I was working with the science department chair teaches AP chemistry and AP teachers have this month after the test is done to do real learning, <laughs> you know, to have enjoyable experiences. And so she's like, I really want to do this thing. And so we talked through this process of why don't you create digital books that the older students would create that then younger students could use the following year related to chemistry. And then as part of that, we kind of spitballed this idea. Well, why don't we, why don't you have the kids make an explainer video, which is one of the projects in my book. And explainer videos, we've all seen them online. It's sort of like a short video that explains how to do something or the history of a concept or, or something like that. And it's easily doable with any kind of presentation software. You just record it. And so that's what she did. And she had her students do these projects who had no official training. They weren't in a special class to do this. And they killed it. They like came back with these amazing, incredible videos that were really, really impressive. And so now she can use those with her younger students. And I was just speaking to a college professor who teaches music in Virginia. He's doing the same thing with his music theory students is that they're creating digital books as like a customized textbook that he can use with the younger students. So they can customize it to exactly the needs of what their population needs and what their curriculum is focused on. And so the students create this project, it's published publicly, they feel like there's a worth behind what they've done and it's gonna help other people. So that's one of the projects that we do that I think you can see that you don't have to be a media arts teacher or an English teacher to teach storytelling. Storytelling is everywhere and we're seeing that more and more. I think there's even programs for scientists to do storytelling for scientists because not only do they need to write grants and proposals to fund their research in like the millions of dollars, but also they have to explain their findings to the general public now, right? People don't trust experts anymore. So they have to really clarify in layman's terms, this is what we're doing and this is why it's beneficial to society. And this is, you know, the facts behind vaccines, for example, or anything else related to climate change, for example. And so I think it's important for everybody to, to learn it. And at the end of the day, this isn't really an add-on. This is we, what we already do in the classroom every day. We already ask our students to tell the story of their learning. It just happens to be in an essay or a test or maybe a class discussion or a performance. And so what I offer in the book is just kind of like just pivot one of those assignments. So what would have been a class presentation on a slide deck already turns into an explainer video. You just record it and you publish it online. So it's not really that big of a lift. Digital books, it's the same thing. You can use them to collect the artifacts that they're already doing for your other assignments and you put them in a digital book and you publish it. And that can become like a portfolio for the student that you share with the next grade level teachers to set whatever class they need to be in. Or if your older students are there, then maybe they can use that for, for college applications and things like that. So it's not really a huge lift. We're not asking teachers to have to like retool and learn all this stuff and go through hours of PD. It's just a little bit of a pivot. And I try to offer how to do that step-by-step step in the book. So hopefully that'll, that'll help everybody out. So can a teacher who isn't very tech savvy easily facilitate these kind of projects? Yeah, I mean, again, thinking about digital storytelling is as simple as taking a photograph. You know, like we talk about there's a whole chapter dedicated to how each of these multimedia can help in learning. And a photograph is a way to freeze time, to document something, to allow us time to investigate, analyze, even using a tablet to like annotate and label pieces of a map or diagramming a sentence or an organ in biology or something like that. And so it can be very, very simple. There are more complex stories, like a video documentary is like a whole other beast. I have some advice about that as well. 
So it's really just a matter of what you're comfortable with. And I think making it okay to not be an expert. And I know I'm super anal about needing to know everything and have my ducks in a row in my class. So I totally get it. But I think what's really cool is when we let the kids teach us or when we say to them, I don't know how to do this exactly. I think this is going to be really cool and beneficial. Let's work together on this and figure it out. And it just lets them know that you trust them, that we're partners in the learning. It's not top down. Their ideas can educate you and us. And there's many times when the kids have taught me lessons. And what a great feeling, right? Think about that. If you were in elementary school or middle school or even high school and you taught your teacher something, like, you know, how empowering is that? And that's the kind of relationship we want to have is that this is a collaborative effort as well. It's not just there's one right answer. You've got to nail it. Otherwise, you're a loser because that's what we teach in school right now, right? So let's work together to solve this problem and figure things out. And I think that's maybe a good mindset to have as well. In your book, you share several quick win projects. What's one you'd recommend for beginners? I mean, there's a great one called Me, My Selfie, and I, <laughs> which is actually how I start all of my classes off. And it's a great project where students take selfies and then we talk about them, we put them up on the screen and we analyze them and talk about identity and representation and the story of you and how you craft a story. And that's a great in also to cover social emotional wellness piece of this too, which I think is huge, um, like I started to allude to a moment ago. But so that's a really fun one. But the very practical ones, I think that are just sort of a direct swap out your other assignments would be like the explainer video. I think that's sort of like what I call the Swiss army knife of digital projects. So you can use it at any any course, any subject matter, any grade level, it's a really easy thing to do. It's basically, if you can create a slide deck, you can create an explainer video and, and it's a really great thing to do. I might also say this too, think, thinking of grade levels. I think sometimes maybe we have in our head that this is only for like older students, like maybe middle or high school. But one of the case studies in my book talks about a third grade teacher who had her students create a podcast series independently. They actually produced it and they interviewed like an astronaut and their governor of their state and everything. And they did it on their own. So I think that no matter what grade level or age of the students, anybody can do digital storytelling and it's important to start early, but it's just a matter of complexity. Like how familiar are they with the subject and how much do you expect them to produce in their story as well? In an age of AI, are digital storytelling projects really uncheatable assessments? And then how do you grade them in your classroom? Yeah, that's such a big challenge right now with AI. And it's sort of like, what's our point as teachers? What's our role and how do we assess the kids? And I dedicate a whole chapter to assessment and using storytelling as a form of assessment for so many reasons um, and so many ways. And I go into a lot of details about how to assess in the book. But one of my key pieces of this is like how authentic project-based learning assignments like digital storytelling are uncheatable. And they're uncheatable for a couple of reasons. First of all, you're disincentivizing the reason for kids to cheat in the first place, which basically means, I mean, there's probably many reasons why kids would cheat, but one is that they don't care, right? And so through the storytelling process, you work with the students to develop an aspect of your subject matter and your curriculum that they are passionate about, that they're going to make their story about. And so they want to find the answer. They care about the ending. And so from the beginning, you disincentivize cheating in the first place. The second thing is that every piece is unique. If you have an assignment and an assessment where everybody's expected to have the exact same answer, you've just set yourself up for failure. That's of course cheatable. Then it sends the wrong message that there's only one right answer to any problem. Yeah. <laughs> 
right? And now we have these political problems because of that, right? There's only one right answer, mine. So how do I grade? In the book, I talk about breaking it down into a couple of different areas, basically splitting it off into content. So what content do you expect the kids to address or define or include like if it's a science experiment or you know, a history project, like an oral history project, you've got certain criteria that you've got to hit on, recitation of facts and historical background and things like that. And then there's the style and design piece, which I think is really important too. We forget that design is really important. If something is boring, you're not going to listen to it. So all of your work is wasted. If something is difficult to read because the design is, is chaotic or garish or there's low contrast, it's hard for people to see, it makes it painful to actually look at the thing, then you're going to lose viewers. Um, and so that's a big component too. So we break it down. And I've had questions from folks about, you know, do you have a rubric? What's the rubric look like? Right? I wish I could say buy the book and the rubric's in there. <laughs> Everybody wants that, right? Um, and so the short answer is it's kind of in there. I'm not a huge fan of rubrics for the same reason as I'm not a fan of standardized testing because eventually the kids are going to argue, well, is this a 3.1 or is it a 3.2? And you're going to have to make a subjective decision as a teacher, just like you would on an essay in a report. Here's an example. So I talk about it in the book and I'm a big proponent of measuring values, not systems. When we measure a system, we're measuring, can you do this timed essay with this few of errors and you have the structure a certain way in this time frame, right? Or a standardized test, you fill out the bubble sheet appropriately and you got the right answers. That's a system. The problem with that, of course, we talked about, right? Everyone has the same answer. We're teaching the wrong things. We're not teaching independent thinking and critical thinking. So if we're measuring values, here's a great example. In my journalism class, I had a student last year who created a story. He found out that there was an intersection in our community that people were just running the stop signs. And he, I don't know how he figured this out, but he found out and decided to make a story about it. So he went out, he interviewed people, he talked to neighbors, he shot footage of it, got security camera footage of the cars running the stop signs as, as visual evidence. We call the B-roll visual evidence. So you're collecting data. Journalism is actually like science. We talked about that in the book too. <laughs> and so he produced this story, this news package, it was 90 seconds long. And then the police department saw it because he tagged them in social media when we made the post. They saw it and they're like, oh shoot, we've got this problem. So they started putting a patrol car out there and giving people citations. Well, now no one's running the stop sign anymore. So if I had a, a rubric for that story, and if you saw it, you would see that the writing was imperfect. The videography wasn't that engaging. It did, got the job done, but it wasn't super exciting or particularly dynamic. And the voiceover performance was just okay. I probably would have got a B plus if I used a rubric. Now, did that story save a life? Did it prevent bodily injury? Did it prevent somebody from having to spend thousands of dollars to fix a wrecked car? What's the value in that? If I'm measuring the value, if I'm assessing the values of my course, which is do something meaningful to help the community, then that's an A. But if I stuck to a, a rubric, he would get a B plus. So what, do we, what does that tell the kids? That I should stick with something easy and not difficult and, so that I can get the A? Or should I be rewarded by doing something meaningful and impactful in my community? I say the second. In one word, why should teachers try digital storytelling now? Democracy. Okay. The future. What do you want our kids to be able to do when we're old? How will we prepare them to manage AI and climate change and everything else? 
What are the skills that they need? How are we preparing them to be good ancestors? So those are more than one word, but <laughs> hey, it works. No, that's great. So thank you so much for for taking the time to talk with me today. To read Michael's educational leadership article, "The Power of Digital Storytelling," visit www.ascd.org/el. Also, check out Michael's new book, "Storytelling with Purpose," now available for pre-order on ISTE's website. Thanks so much, Michael. Thanks, Sarah. It was fun.